You know what I find funny, personally, is that I don't really have a lot of fond memories of this episode, but I don't really have a lot of, like, oh, this episode was horrible kind of memories either. It was just kind of there. I do have one distinct memory, which I just wanted to share with you briefly. Once upon a time, I had the great fortune of having friends. I could cut that off there and make the joke of it, but I, I did. I'd had friends who were really into Star Trek when Star Trek The Next Generation was coming out. So, as we were seeing the episodes, we would gather together at school the next day and talk about it and discuss it. And I have distinct memories of the three of us getting together after Where No One Has Gone Before came out and talking about it and being like, oh my god, did you see that? Yeah, they break the warp barrier. Oh my god. And that's all we could talk about. Not Wesley, not the Traveler, not Thought is Reality, none of the actual points of the episode. All we could talk about is the fact that they went past Warp 10. Looking back, something about that really amuses me. I, uh... <clears throat> so anyways... Let's talk about the episode. I kind of like the intro. Riker does show some obvious... Uh, the beginnings of what will eventually be his character here. Where he is protective of the ship, and... I, I suppose... A skeptic is the word I want to use. He's he's like, alright, prove yourself to me. Make make Prove to me that this isn't going to cause any issues. You know, when it comes to the safety of this ship, you bet I play it safe, etc., etc. So that makes sense, and I like that. Um, it is funny, though, because he's so suspicious of the nonsense. I'll talk more about that later. Don't worry, I wrote down a sentence to talk about that. And then Kaczynski shows up. Oh, and so does the Traveler. Now, I... I, 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 if you've seen this episode recently, you understand what I mean by this. He is an ass. Like, he is so arrogant and so, oh, yes, well, it's only natural that someone burn around me. Like, like if, if I was to, to wave the, the smuggo meter around here, it, it would just, it would explode in my hands right next to him. It's, it's a lighter. It's a big lighter for my candles. Um, it would explode because this guy just, like, like you ever see one of those pictures of someone, or a doll or whatever, and you, you pour the, the liquid in, and then it goes... All that liquid is the smug that's trying to escape his mortal form, so it can take its true presence as the conqueror of the Federation, and infect all of Starfleet with the smug. Now, what's funny is most of the episodes where Starfleet personnel act particularly smugly are after this episode. So, I mean, maybe that actually makes a degree of sense. All seriousness, though, this guy just made me want to slug him in the face in all but one of the scenes he was in. I th I was actually jotting down instances as I was going through, like, okay, here he talks about this, and notice how he gestures here, and notice how he pontificates here, and notice how he acts to Argyle here, and notice how he acts to Riker here. There's too many instances. It's just this non-stop, bam, 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 bam. This guy is is unsurpassed in Star Trek history, except for Luxana Troy, as far as just being way too full of themselves to a degree that's actually, frankly, kind of grating. It goes back to something I've talked about before. And I know there's actually two thoughts when it comes to creating entertainment or media. 
when it comes to this mentality. Some people say you should just stick to it, stick to the creative medium, and screw the consequences. And some people, like myself, I'm in the second category here, say just because a character is deliberately irritating doesn't not make them irritating. You know, there's such a thing as too far. There's such a thing as making someone too horrible to the point where, and I've talked about this before, it's not about, oh, I, I dislike this character. It's, I want this character off my screen. And for almost the entire episode, every time he came on screen, I was just like, go away. Please go away. Oh, my God. I wrote down a note early on. It's just the word Kool-Aid. And what I meant by that is I was wondering if he had drunk his own Kool-Aid. In other words, if he legitimately believed all his own stupid hype, or hype, excuse me, if he believed all of his, you know, I really am this awesome, or if he was just putting up a front, like, no, no, I know I'm actually full of crap, but I want to make sure everyone knows how awesome I am. Then I got to the part of the episode where he just sort of, it's the one episode, it's the one scene I mentioned earlier, which I didn't mind him in, where, you know, I, I, I thought it, I thought it was me. I thought what I was doing somehow, you know, he, and credit to the actor, he, he comes across as very deflated in that scene. Like someone whose entire worldview has just been smashed. And so, and that's the one scene, you know, where he ate crow, where I'm like, okay. He's like, oh, I, I didn't understand. So it becomes clear based on that and some earlier stuff that this guy legitimately believes his own garbage. And that brings me to a quote I wrote down for you. Okay, you ready for this? I'm going to run through it once, and then I'm going to dissect it a little bit. As the power grew, I applied the energy asymptomatically. Now, I anticipated some tilling, but it didn't occur... But it didn't occur... God, this is such a weirdly constructed sentence. Forgive me. But it didn't occur... Now, that was my error using the vessel functions at the beginning. Now, that's his excuse. That's his reasoning for why things happen that he gives Picard and the rest of the bridge crew. Now, when I first saw that, I'm like, oh, he's he's blowing smoke. But no, like I said, apparently he really does legitimately believe his own crap. Um, let's dissect this sentence for a second. As the power grew, I applied the energy asymptomatically. Does anyone know what the term asymptomatic means? Give you a hint. It's a medical term. It refers to not having symptoms. I know. Brain science. <laughs> In other words, when you have an asymptomatic situation, you're looking at it like, well, okay, I don't... Something's obviously wrong here, but I need to try and determine it because there's no actual visible uh, symptoms in order to use to, to reverse diagnose what's going on. Very simple, right? Okay? So, he... <laughs> then, of course, he anticipated some tilling. I mean, it's only logical that when you're working with this this science fiction, space magic, whatever, that you would be doing some farming, right? Now, Lord knows I'm the kind of person who likes to use words not quite in context, because the meaning can still be given across, depending on how you use the word. But tilling doesn't apply to warp drive, and neither does asymptomatic. Now... What's funny about this is this is deliberate nonsense. This is where someone, the, the, the writer of the script, probably Maurice Hurley, uh, from what I understand, he's the one who did several uncredited rewrites on this episode, uh, sat down and wrote gibberish, deliberately wrote nonsense to get across the point that he was speaking nonsense. 
for those of you not aware, this was actually before Star Trek really got into the Technobabble thing. The original series had a little bit of Technobabble. The movies had a little bit of Technobabble. But Technobabble as a concept, as a writing trope, which I will discuss when it really shows up, didn't really exist yet at this point in history. So they actually rat wrote the legitimate nonsense down here in order to try and get across the point. I find this funny in its own right because there will be technobabble that will be used with total sincerity later on, especially on Voyager and Enterprise, that is actually more nonsensical than asymptomatic tilling. And that's kind of sad. So, I know I've spoken in defense of Season 1 many times, and in fact, to, to date, I have been enjoying Season 1 way more than I thought I would. But I have to say, at least they didn't write dry nonsense that was frankly insulting into the script. And even their attempt to do so deliberately came across as something that was simply obvious stupidity, and the characters acknowledged it. Riker even flat out says, it's, to me, to be honest, it sounds like nonsense to me, sir. It's because it is, Riker. It's because it is. So then... I want to mention something about Kaczynski, since I'm already talking about him. I'm kind of jumping through the episode here, forgive me. So I mentioned there was that one scene I, I tolerated him at. I mentioned, though, there's only the one scene, because then after that, he goes right back to being an idiot. He, he, he is way too defensive, way too antagonistic. He even shouts out, oh, it's just a theory, huh? And then when they start talking about, oh, we need to get home, we need to get home, he's like, well, why don't we just study? Why don't we just stay here and study it? I don't see an issue with that. I, I actually wanted Picard to turn and just go, and just flick him across the face. Not like an actual punch, you know, it's a Starfleet, revolved, blah, blah, blah. But just, you know, go away, fly. Anyways, so let's move on in the episode. Um, <clears throat> so, <laughs> I'm just going to nitpick one really small thing here. Just a little thing. I want you to remember that I I once did a rumination analysis on an episode called Repentance. It was season seven of Voyager. I don't remember the episode. It was about midway through, I want to say. It was the episode about oh, a lot of things, actually. And it was a good episode. The criminals, brain defect fixed, etc. You know, all sorts of stuff about that. But I want to bring up that episode because a major plot point of that episode was that they had to have them on the crew of, on the ship Voyager because it would take them so long to reach their destination. You remember that? That was literally critical to the episode. If Voyager could just warp over and beam them down in a few minutes or hours or even a day, then there would be no episode. So they had to have this plot thread in there. They had to have that limitation. And I pointed out at the time, I hope at least some of you remember this, that Star Trek is pretty inconsistent with how fast the warp speeds are. Now, apologists will say this is because they've adjusted the warp scale over time, but that's not what I'm talking about, because, I mean, obviously the warp, what is it, 14 in the original series is not really applicable to the TNG scale, but the TNG scale is applied from TNG onward. TNG, Voyager, and Deep Space Nine all use the TNG scale. Uh, actually, so does Enterprise. The, they actually had tech people sit down and determine the actual scale. That's why it goes from 9 to 9.1 to 9.2, etc., because each thing up is it, it, it starts doing this, right? Anyways, point being, even within a singular show, Star Trek is pretty inconsistent with how fast a dwarf travel is. I only bring this up... Because based on the numbers given in this episode, some of which are really eyebrow-raising, um, 
the Enterprise D in season one of TNG is roughly nine times faster than Voyager in season one of Voyager. That's pretty fast. I mean, that's actually pretty impressive. I just felt, felt, felt like pointing it out because it just amused me to share that comparison. No actual real nitpick, no real negative. It's just the whole inconsistency thing. We all do it. We all have that problem. <sighs> I applied it asymptomatically. That really amuses me. Um, I, I want to share something else really quick. Forgive me for mathing out here really quick. So, when I was a kid... I didn't fully understand this, but when I went to watch this the next time, which I was uh, closer to my 20s when I did a run-through of the whole series again, I remember being blown away by the fact that they were just like, let's just turn around and go back. See, here on Earth, you know, turning around and going back is a relatively easy thing to do. If you're in particularly bad circumstances like a vast desert or a dense jungle, that can be more difficult you know, easier said than done. But in general, if you just turn around and go back where you can, you can make it. But space doesn't really work that way. You've got more dimensions to work with, first of all. And you've got the problem that if you're even one degree off, you're going to have issues. I decided to go ahead and do some math. Forgive me. Unfortunately, I, d I didn't feel like going way into this. So let's assume that they try to aim back where they came from, okay? Now they say it was... Uh, 13 million light or something? I didn't actually write down the number. I just wrote down the results. So forgive me for not showing my work here. But, you know, they need to go this distance back to get back from M3 or whatever. Okay? Cool. Um, if, and I, could, I didn't want to go below one degree. So let's say they are one degree in any direction off from their intended course. Like, let's assume they've got everything right except they're one degree too far that way. Okay? That one degree over that distance will translate to 47,123.292 light years off course. Now, I mention this because this is actually a very real problem that scientists have had to deal with in real life many times when it comes to space travel. You need to be as absolutely precise as you can, and the further you go, the more precise you need to be. So when we're talking these distances, you have to be insanely precise. Now, I know that large numbers don't really have a lot of meaning, so let's just say that if they aimed wrong, they'd come back in the delta quadrant by one degree. 47,000 light years is a little under half the width of the entire galaxy. That's a really, really wide uh, margin of error. And I only mention that because it actually adds to my enjoyment of the episode when I sit down and think about it, and at the same time detracts from it, because they don't draw attention to it. They're just like, oh, well, we just redirect our course back and we'll be fine. I mean, that doesn't actually make sense to me. How do you know what, what back is at that point? Your sensors are probably not programmed to detect things quickly enough to process what's going by you at the speeds you're going. I, I, I'm, I'm legitimately curious about that. So on the one hand, like if I was to just intellectually sit back, it's like, oh my god, you know, the distance to get back might be possible, but we need to aim super perfectly or else it's going to be screwed. But then the episode doesn't even acknowledge that for one second. In fact, it completely deflates all of that tension because right at the end it says we are exactly back where we started. Remember that? Right towards the end of the episode. It would have been, I, I just think it would have been cool if they had acknowledged that aspect of space travel. We must try to be as precise as possible, make sure if we, we do this, you know, just add to the tension of the moment. But I digress. So I'm done geeking out. Time to talk about Star Trek instead. <laughs>
So, let's talk about Starfleet. Let's talk about Starfleet's position in this. Because it's obvious to anyone with any kind of a brain, including us, the people watching this episode, who are not a part of Starfleet, that Kaczynski is full of crap. Everyone says that. Kaczynski himself says, yep, nope, I've been through all this crap before. Nobody believes it until it happens, but every single time I've done it, it's been amazing, blah, 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 blah. You know, right? Right? So, I only have one question, and I'm really curious what you guys think about this one. Do you think that Starfleet believes that his stuff actually works, like believes his dry nonsense and is trying to figure out the method to it so they can reproduce it without him? Or... And I like this one a little bit better myself. Do you think that someone at Starfleet actually has a damn brain and is allowing him to continue doing these experiments specifically to try and figure out what the hell is really going on? Because I, I want to parallel this. I really want you to understand this one. I, I feel like the writers didn't really think this through. You know, maybe the original writers with the original script thought it through. I don't know. But with the episode we have, they obviously didn't. I want you to imagine that... I walk up to you in real life, and I'm like, hey, um, if I... <sighs> God, it's actually really hard for me to come up with nonsense off the top of my head. Forgive me. If I heat up the vector to which I'm traveling um, inside out... God, this is really hard. Basically, just picture if I say something that is completely nonsensical, right? Like, I literally just tell you something that doesn't apply. You know, like, like heating up an angle of, of travel, right? Like that, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean anything, right? It's complete nonsense. But I tell you this, and I'm like, and this will enable me to snap my fingers and make apples appear out of thin air. And you're like, <laughs> and then I snap my fingers and apples appear out of thin air, right? The apples are there. You know, the proof has happened. What's your first thought going to be? Now, I'm just going to jump ahead here, because I imagine your first thought's going to be, well, this is a trick. So you're going to ask me to repeat it. And if you're really rigorous, you might ask me to repeat it under different circumstances, so you have a better chance of proving that I'm not just you know, pulling a magic trick. Now, let's say I do this in front of a government agent, or in front of a scientific committee. And they're looking at me like, you're talking nonsense, but he's doing it. And I can repeat it, because I'm actually doing it, because I'm actually making apples appear out of thin air. Right? Or rather, the guy behind me is to, to continue the parallel of the traveler to Kaczynski. But you get the idea, right? This is actually happening. It is provably happening. But the explanation I'm giving you with enthusiasm and smug ego makes no sense. So you could see why it would be logical for Starfleet to keep pushing for more of these experiments to try and figure out what the crap hell is actually going on. The idea that they don't believe this but he is accomplishing it. Right? And what's funny is that is what happens in this episode. Having continued doing this over and over, at one point in time, they're finally like, Aha! It makes sense. He isn't the one doing it. It's the Traveler doing it. Unfortunately, then the Traveler leads, but, you know, then they have their explanation. The other possibility, of course, is that Starfleet is really that stupid, and it's just like... 
Oh my gosh, you're right, I never thought of heating up my vectors before. Please show us how you can asymptomatically apply energy as it grows. <laughs> Just, what? I'll let you decide which one you prefer. They're both good for their own different reasons. But, as I'm, I'm looking here, I'm looking down, at, I, I've jotted down a couple of notes regarding this, because we see this in the episode. First of all, in addition to the nonsense he says, he also gives the most stupidest excuse for why he needs the Traveler. He says, well, he can put in this stuff far faster than any human. Even me can put it in. And then we see the Traveler doing this. And you can't hand-wave this away as an effects issue, because even in this show, with its shoestring budget, prior to now, you know, not, not counting future stuff, but as in already established on screen in the episode uh, Naked Now, we've already seen that they can do the super-fast thing with Data putting the isolinear chips back in. So it's not like they couldn't put that effect in, and they already did a lot of effects for this episode. Oh, by the way, quick aside, I just want to say, really good job on the effects team back in the day. Obviously, it's been touched up for the Blu-ray version I'm watching, but I actually bothered to pull up uh, one of my old DVDs of this episode just to enjoy the original effects, because while some of it's obviously just blur, 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 um, the rest, they did, I think they did a pretty good job of coming across with the way out there, spacey look without looking like what it probably would look like, which is basically just nothing, you know. But uh, good job on their part, good job on their part. Anyways, so we have that excuse, right? Then there's a bit, and I, I should have written down who said this, but one of the characters says, we must assume that this isn't nonsense because we've seen the proof. And uh, Troy herself, with her has flat out said, he is convinced he's right. He believes that this works. So, take your pick. Either they really do believe him, <laughs> or they're trying to figure out what's actually going on. It could also be a mixture. Certain people could be on different sides of the fence on that one. That brings me to my next point, though. So... The Traveler, of course, right? And then Riker is strangely a dick to, to Wesley. Now, I mentioned that because Riker's the guy who's actually been pretty cool to Wesley. Like, in again, in the episodes we've seen to date, already on camera. You know, Riker's the one who, during uh, Code of Honor, is like, Come on board, Wesley. Yeah, sure. Man the calm. You remember that, right? Crisis situation. Yeah, hey, what's up, dude? <laughs> Shrug. Also, apparently that was illegal, since, you know, he couldn't have any commissioned officers. I'll talk about that later. But Riker comes across as pretty put-offish. But at the same time, I do have to say that despite my... Uh, inner, uh, I have this automatic reaction to when anyone's being a dick. And that's to just kind of be like, screw you, you know... You have no right to be a dick. Because I don't like those kind of people in real life, and I don't like those kind of people in fiction. So I have to kind of mentally remove myself from that automatic reaction and be like, well, hang on. Hang on. Riker's in the middle of a very tense situation, in the middle of absolutely nowhere, with no not no certainty of getting back, and he's really got to concentrate on it, and this kid comes up and is trying to talk to him, and it's like, look, I'm sure this is fascinating, Wesley, but it can wait, okay? Later. All right? And also, why is Wesley still in engineering? I can understand why he was in engineering to, at the beginning. That makes perfect sense. You know, he was just there 
Well, I shouldn't say that makes perfect sense because it actually doesn't, but whatever. Let's just assume for a moment that it's okay for a civilian to be in a military location. I'm sorry, I'm not going to stop talking. I already said that before. So military, crucial, key position. Granted, he's a civilian with some access. He's not like a, you know, a visiting alien or whatever. But anyway, Civi, hanging out there. Still kind of questionable, but I'm willing to go with it because it's a fairly, you know, non-tense situation. He's just hanging out, studying the panels or whatever. Fine. Don't touch anything, you know. Okay, fine. It's not like he's five, right? But then they come in to do this unheard of, very dangerous, people are worried about it. Riker almost doesn't even want to let him do it experiment, and Wesley is allowed to stay there. Then they do it again. And Wesley is still there. <laughs> Wes, I actually like you as a character, and I admit I'm very biased because I like Will Wheaton, but what are you doing here? Well, of course, we know the answer of why he's here, because he's Mozart. And that's the other thing that this episode does. It, uh... <sighs> it establishes that Wesley is the Ubermensch... The amazing, super-evolved prodigy I am Mozart, except for Warp Engine's kid. Which I suppose I'm going to have to talk about in more depth later. And I'm pretty sure I even know the exact episode I want to talk about that in. It's not for a bit. It's going to be a ways in the future. All I'm going to say is that I get where they were going with this. I really do. But even here, and again, even as someone who's trying to be nice to Wesley, he comes across as just kind of... What? In this episode. It's... <sighs> whatever. Whatever. I'm just... Hmm. Like, I, I, I can't apologize for how Wesley is portrayed in this episode. I can't. He, there's too many scenes where he just, you know, Mom, he's my friend. I have a name, sir. It's Wesley. You know, he just comes across as this weird sort of... Eh. In fact, if I were to be so bold, given Hollywood's general take on super geniuses, I would say he's being portrayed as if he has a social uh, anxiety or general disorder that doesn't allow him to interact with other people normally. You know, no specifics, but that's the way he's portrayed and has been portrayed pretty much up to date. Very observant. You know, that was established all the way in Encounter Farpoint. First thing. Very observant, very smart, basically a genius. Remember, he completely outsmarted everyone and the chief engineer in Naked Now. And he just is like, well, this warp field works like this, and thought is reality, and all that. He, he jumps ahead to all of that. And I'll talk about that in a minute, too. But, <laughs> I don't know. The way he's portrayed really makes me wonder what the hell's going on with this. But, I digress. <sighs> Let's... Let's talk about this. Let's talk about thought as reality. Wait, before I go into that, I want to mention Chief Argyle here. Um, I didn't remember him in other episodes. Apparently he actually is in a couple more episodes. I'll have to be watching out for that this time around, because I looked into it. But I find it funny that I think this is actually our longest standing chief engineer until Geordi takes the job. But what the hell was going on in engineering for season one of, of TNG? It's They never talk about it on camera. They never really discuss it or analyze it or go in depth and do it. It's just... Uh. They also mentioned that Argyle is a chief engineer, which made me go, what? Unless I just misheard him, which is entirely possible. Anyways, okay, now we'll talk about thought is reality. 
I hate to quote basically sci-fi debris on this one, but I have the exact same reaction to this that he did, and I'm always trying to be honest to myself. So, there's really, in my experience, from all the Star Trek fans I've talked to about this episode, only two ways to look at it. This is a mind-blowing, you know, oh my god, this is truly, you know, a revelation episode that really examines reality and, and the future and the next level of human evolution, blah, 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 right? Or... This is a load of horse crap. And I imagine there's some in-between there. And as ever, I'd love to hear your guys' comments of your thoughts on the whole thought is reality thing. Thought is the basis of reality. Excuse me, let me say it as accurately as I can. I'm in the second category. I think this is a load of horse crap. Sorry. I look at this and I'm like... See, the problem is... That effectively is Technobabble. And again, I hate to agree with Sci-Fi Debris on this, but that is really where this is at. This is a form of generalization that is so sweeping that it effectively loses meaning. It's like looking at something and saying, well, you know, blah. You, <laughs> there's no... No effort is really made to discuss it. No strength or, or analysis or philosophy or anything is spent on it. It's just stated flatly, thought is the basis of reality. And then Kaczynski <laughs> doesn't believe it and calls it nonsense, which I find hysterical, by the way. And, the, and he, of course, he's a dick. And then Picard's like, no, no, that makes perfect sense. And it's like, okay, that's it. That's, that's all they do. Now, if I was to credit this episode for being clever, I would say this is the original idea being turned on its head. Remember, the beginning of this episode, Starfleet in general and the crew see this guy, Kaczynski, spattering absolute drivel nonsense. But it works. It provably works. Huh. So, towards the end of this episode, they see the Traveler and he spouts what is effectively the same drivel and nonsense. But it has already been proven to be true. Now... The reason I, I can't give this episode credit for being clever on that is in the former case, it was a, we didn't know it was what was actually going on. You know, it wasn't Kaczynski, it wasn't his stupidity. It was the Traveler doing all that, right? So, I shouldn't say all of it, he admits he only did most of it, but the point remains, right? So, in the former case, it was, let's figure out what's actually going on, and in the latter case, it's, let's accept it blindly on the face of it. And that's not clever from a writing or a narrative perspective, so can't actually give it credence on that. So this is when the episode kind of nosedived for me in quality. They did some good stuff with it, in, in fairness. Uh, we got to see a little bit of Yar's pastime, which was genuinely chilling. Again, this is like, what, the third time now I've brought up Yar's backstory? Or I suppose, suppose I should say the show has brought up Yar's backstory and what she's been through? That was just... Ugh. And then uh, we see a couple of good things. Picard and his mother. That was actually pretty nice. I liked that tidbit. And there was a couple other good scenes with that. But I really sat down and, and turned on analysis mode. And I noticed something I don't think I've ever noticed before. Sometimes, when someone has, you know, thought affecting reality, other people can perceive what they can perceive. Yar sees the Targ, Right? Um, excuse me. Yar sees the Targ, and Picard sees the fire that the crewman is invoking right at the end, right? But in other cases, 
they can't see it. Like Picard doesn't see what the crewmen are running from, or the ensign who's who's ballerina dancing, or Riker doesn't see Picard's mother. Now, there's no there's no like oh they vanished when they were distracted here. Riker comes around the corner. Picard is kneeling there talking to his mother. Riker says, "Excuse me, sir," and Picard's like, "Hang on, hang on," and then turns around and she's gone. Riker didn't see her. There's no there's no getting around this. Okay. And of course, earlier, Picard does not see anything coming down that corridor at all, despite the, the presentation of how they're going through it. So, in some cases, it's visible to everyone. In other words, they are manifesting reality. And in some cases, it's only visible to the individual person, in which case, it's all in their head. And you see why I'm nitpicking about this? Because from a narrative perspective, from a writer's perspective, it needs to be more cohesive than just internal or manifested external. I got another example for you. Tasha, who is going through that flashback of being on, you know, Hell Planet, is suddenly, a hand goes on her shoulder and she freaks the hell out, but it's just Doherty who, of course, didn't see any of that. Right? Why is it inconsistent in its presentation? Now, I'm sure there's some explanation for this other than bad writing. I'm sure there's some explanation for this, and it's probably going to involve some kind of, well, you know, the mind is inconsistent, so the presentation, whatever. I don't agree with that personally. I think as a writer, as someone sitting down writing a work of fiction, you should lay out exactly how it works and frickin' stick to it. And that's one of the biggest things that pulled me out of this episode this time through. Like I said at the beginning, I don't have a very long, very strong feelings, positively or negatively, towards this episode before I watched it with analysis mode on. This time around, with analysis mode on, my opinion of the episode plummeted because of how inconsistent it is with itself, never mind previously established episodes. I even wrote down what each person was seeing. Like, sometimes I like to do this. Look at the specific incidents and really analyze them, and maybe you can draw some character moments out of this. But Worf sees his Targ for seemingly no reason, and then, okay, that doesn't mean anything. She sees her cat, that makes a degree of sense. She is reminded of the concept of a cat, and, you know, so from the Targ. So that's that's a logical leap. Okay, I'm with that. But the, And Picard thinking about warp travel in space, okay, that makes a degree of sense when he walks out of the turbolift. Okay, but then he sees his mother. What the hell does that mean? Where did that thought come from? Also, I'm just going to repeat the joke that everyone else has said, so forgive me, but I like the fact that the only member of the Picard family who knows how to frickin' smile is his mother. <laughs> we see his father later in this show. We see his brother later in this show. They are not nice people. They, they give the word surly a bad name. <laughs> Anyways. You know, and then, of course, why does the one ensign a ballerina? What does that tell us about her character? Why is the one ensign playing the violin? I remind you, they're on a, a top-of-the-line galaxy-class cruise ship, basically. You know, the apartment complex in space, which has a holodeck. They can do this stuff on their off hours every day if they wanted to. So what's the significance of acting out these fantasies while on duty? Explain that one to me. What does the fire mean for that one guy? What was chasing the other ends? You know, what do these things mean? It feels like they just sat down and tried to come up with random stuff for random sake without making it actually relevant or significant. So, 
to continue the theme of this episode, this is the third time now that we've had... Actually, this is the, technically the second, because the Traveler scene happens later. But this is the second time now in the episode of three, where we just have dry nonsense being spat at the camera. For no reason. And I think that's why this episode grates on me this time around a bit more than it ever has before. I do have one quick question, though. Sorry, before I move on, I just one more question. Why is it that people get so wrapped up in these fantasies? Like, some of them make sense. You know, you, you're walking down the corridor and you see a Tyrannosaurus Rex stomping down the corridor somehow. And you're like, oh god! You know, I, I could see you getting caught up in that fantasy because you're not thinking about it logically. All you're seeing is a threat and those instincts kick in and you start to run. Okay, that makes sense. The fire, again... Threat, immediate, that makes sense. Why was the one Ensign so wrapped up in her ballerina dancing? Why was the other guy, I don't, I don't remember his rank, Pip, forgive me, so caught up in his violin playing? We see, I feel like there's another instance, we see several instances of people who just fall into the fantasy like, yep, nope, this is it, this is cool. This is what should, oh, it's gone. It's pretty much how that goes. Why? Or is this implying something of the quality of crew on the flagship of the Federation? Which, to be completely blunt, I could see at this point in history because despite the Cardassian conflict in the past, that is a bit in the past, and this is, as I mentioned earlier, the, you know, the golden era of change, you know, the post-Cold War situation, where it's okay to be a, a flying apartment complex in space and to not have the best crew on the best ship. That's, that's logical. And Lord knows in several future episodes we'll see the, shall we say, level of quality of Starfleet personnel on the Enterprise D. So thought is reality. Okay, I'm with that. And they use that and Wesley and Kaczynski for some friggin' reason to get back! And then the Traveler leaves. And then they have an extended coda. And I gotta say... I know that episodes can't just end. I understand this. I understand that there's like a rhythm and a pattern to an episode of television. Even in more uh, serialized or, uh, you know, string continuity television shows, you need to have like a beat in which the episode can end to lead to the next episode, right? You still have to hit that step. You don't want to stop in mid-stride unless you're specifically going for a specific feel. But in general, you know, it's dumb, 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 cut off and then the next episode can begin, even if you're doing a string continuity show. So I get that you need to have something to pull the energy and attention down and kind of have what is effectively a coda. Voyager does this a lot. Now, forgive me, I know, I know you're all going to make fun of me here. Voyager, for the most part, actually has pretty good codas at the end of its episodes. And I found myself enjoying those when I was going through the this, through this series for the Ruminations. But a lot of these Season 1 TNG codas feel a lot like TOS codas. In a bad way. Now, I'm not saying every TOS coda was a bad coda, but you know the ones I remember most? Well, we solved that episode. Dumb joke. Fake laughter. Fake laughter. Music plays us off. Credits roll. I bet a lot of you who have seen the original series know exactly what I mean by that kind of coda. And I've been getting that very strong impression of that same approach to the storytelling in every season one episode that I've looked at thus far. 
I, I don't have much else to say about that. I, I feel that's a yet another symptom, or I should say, excuse me, it's asymptomatic. I, I feel that's yet another example of how a lot of the uh, creative staff who are making TNG Season 1 were still in the mindset of making the original series just, you know, 20 years later, however long it was. Um, just my opinion, but there's a lot of that all over the place. It probably doesn't help that Gene's original idea was to bring board all his old, you know, original series crew and cast and producers or not cast, excuse me, uh, writers, crew, writers, and producers. Well, I've already talked about that and how that fell apart, so no need to rehash that territory. Anyways, so then Wesley shows up, and he's like, sorry, sir, Wesley can't be on the bridge. Now, I get the idea that Riker is trying to push Picard in a sort of cutesy way to try and give you know, break his own rule or give you know, him the commissioned ensign, the, 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 the acting ensign Wesley Crusher. Yeah, okay, I get that, whatever. I also get that this is supposed to be the beginning of the what is actually probably one of the true first character arcs for Wesley Crusher of all freaking characters. But what irritates me most, and I know this is getting into nitpicking again, so please forgive me, no commissioned off... Uh, <laughs> old, excuse me, I'm saying it in reverse. Only commissioned officers allowed on the bridge. That's said in the episode. That's not me implying. That's not me interpreting. That's said on camera. I'm sorry, what? That's that's your plan? You know, none of the enlisted can show up on the bridge? Really? I, <laughs> what's funny is the only explanation I've ever heard for this is that everyone's a commissioned officer. So, first of all, that's stupid which I'm not even going to get into how stupid that is. But second of all, and this is more important, if everyone in charge of Starfleet is a commissioned officer, or at least everyone on the ship is a commissioned officer, even O'Brien, who, by the way, has already been on the bridge, just pointing that out, um, why even make that rule that way? Why not just say Starfleet personnel only on the bridge? Boom. Except that rule doesn't make sense either because they bring dignitaries and, and ambassadors onto the bridge all the freaking time. <laughs> it's also worth noting that Picard's actual rule was no kids on the bridge. Actually, he never said that, by the way. That's an implied rule. All he said was, I don't want to deal with the kids, so please make me look good to the kids. That's all was said. So no matter how you look at this, this is just a dumb excuse to try and get across the... You know, the, the the promoting of Wesley to a, a field commission of acting ensign. Now, why do all this runaround? Why do all the jumping through hoops? Now, I get why. It's because they wanted the stupid little not really funny joke and the cutesy moment and then the, ha-ha, you know, smile, ha uh, The TOS thing I just mentioned. They wanted that. But you realize they could have accomplished the same story approach, if we ignore the the TOS thing, if we, we could accomplish the same story approach with this Coda, by having a meeting, why not have something more somber? I know, everyone knows that I write very dark works. You know, whenever I sit down to write something, it tends to be really dark, so forgive me. But for me, I think it would be more somber and more of a character moment to have Picard in... Let's go with the the, the conference room, the meeting room, right? And Picard is sitting there, and he's drumming his fingers, and Wesley comes in, and he says, Come in, Wesley. You know, and, and he has a effectively a heart-to-heart -heart talk with him. And make it obvious that this is difficult for Picard. 
but important enough that he's willing to do it anyways. Make it obvious that Wesley isn't a prat, but instead is humbled by what's happening and understands the significance of it. Showcase both of their characters side by side and allow them to act off of each other to act as character development for both. And have it be a nice, private, quiet conversation and then have Wesley walk off and then leave Picard in the same general type of shot as the scene began, still sitting there, you know, kind of maybe fingers drumming on the, the, the table or something, you know, just some kind of nervous movement that he can allow himself to do now that no one's watching him. And maybe just like a little bit of a grin or maybe a little bit of a grimace. I'm not sure which, but basically like just contemplating what he just did and then the the, the ship goes off, cut to credits, right? I don't know. I just think that would have worked better than, Sir, you can't violate your own rule. No non-commissioned officers on the bridge. Whatever. Let's get to the next episode. I do hope we're finally going to get to be getting to this some episodes that I really enjoy here in season one, or I'm going to be making a liar out of myself, or at least a variance of opinion of myself. Wouldn't be the first time my opinion has really changed going through a work on analysis mode, but regardless, I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>